and about five minutes later realized that I'd forgotten to change my tire and my tire was completely round. And so the whole afternoon I got to everywhere that I turned the throttle at all, the bike just spun up and, and got no drive. And it was kind of one of those, like I got to just think about my mistake. Oh, five or six times a minute for the next few hours. And you know, that's, that's one of those moments when you just, it's easy to blame yourself and to get upset. And, and then you realize I'm riding a motorcycle around Italy. Like I really don't have anything to be upset about. Episode 75, The Dakar Rally with Ned Cease. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. Today I have Ned Cease on the line with me. Ned competed in the 2012 Dakar Rally, which is a 5,500-mile off-road race in South America. He's also the inventor of the well-known and virtually indestructible double-take mirror for dual-sport motorcycles. He also owns that company. Ned, welcome. Hi. It's nice to speak with you, Travis. Yeah, good to have you. So, Ned, take some time and tell us about how you got into this whole thing about riding the Dakar Rally. I mean, this is a serious race. I mean, it doesn't... I don't even think it compares to the the Baja 1000. How would how did you really kind of how did this all kick off? You know, I um I think when I was in college, uh I I remember uh, going over to a friend's house and a TV was on. It was in January and the Dakar rally was on and that was back when it was in Africa. Um and I I watched these guys riding motorcycles across this just endless sea of dunes. And I just was captivated. I just thought that is the coolest thing I have ever seen. Um, you know, and I, I should, uh, it, 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 at that time, it never occurred to me that I could be someone who could do something like that. Um, you know, it, it seemed to me like that was just so alien that people would be uh, able to ride motorcycles in somewhere like that, that they'd be able to compete, not, not just ride, not just survive, but also compete in those kind of conditions. And so it kind of went in my memory bank as something that I thought was amazing, but maybe not something I ever thought that I could do. Um, after I graduated from college, I went straight to work for a series of startups and high tech companies and um, uh, and at the same time started riding motorcycles. I, I actually had never ridden a motorcycle when I graduated from college. My parents were sort of dead set against it. And that may have backfired on them because two days after I graduated, I went out and bought a sport bike. Um, I think I put 20 odd thousand miles on that thing in the first 10 months I owned it. Um, <laughs> and so, and then I sort of graduated to starting to ride off road because I felt like sport bikes were maybe not a good, uh, long-term health decision for me. Um, and as I started riding off road, of course, you know, you see the people that are the best at that and typically they're racing. And so, you know, I did a local enduro and then I went and did some desert races like um, best in the desert team races. And then um, I went and did the Vegas to Reno, which is a long distance, as the name would imply, from Vegas to Reno. I did that solo. 
Um, and that started me thinking about racing in Baja, which I, uh, I did the 500 solo in 2005. And then I raced both the thousand in 2005 and 2007. Um, and then as I, as I sort of built my skill and built my successes, uh, you know, really, really just relative to my own expectation. I mean, I, I never was setting the world on fire in any of this stuff, but for someone who didn't think it was in them to compete, who didn't, you know, really think of myself as an athlete or someone that could really do something above and beyond the ordinary. Um, you know, each one of these steps kind of led me to the idea, Hey, you know, maybe I'm not as bad as I think I am. Maybe, maybe I actually could go do something. Um, and, and so I started to sort of warm up to the idea of going to race the car. And in 2007, um, I'd started to do a little bit of rally riding. Um, I'll talk more about why I love rallies in particular in a moment, but um, I met a a guy named Elmer Simons. Actually, this was 2006 because uh, in the 2007 Dakar, which is starts the first day of January, um, El- Elmer uh, died. He he um, crashed and succumbed to injuries, um, and and so it really took me back because it really it made me think about you know why. Why is it that I want to do this thing that is so obviously dangerous and that, you know, can really take everything in a moment, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, as I thought about that, um, I sort of stepped away from dreaming of Dakar for a couple years. I was really, it's not that I was so close to Elmer, but I really recognized the kindred spirit. And, and I thought, boy, that you know, is this really worth it? And then the more that I sort of, gave it time and tried to consider that from, from a, a perspective, it, it came to me that it's, it's, it's really all about believing in yourself. And it's, it's about um, the idea that, that everyone, all of us, you know, I was the last guy ever to get picked for a team when I was a kid, I was terrible at every sport that you play in gym class. <laughs> and so, you know, as I sort of realized that I thought that I could do it, that I could do something like Dakar, I felt like I really, I really owe it to myself to give this a shot. I owe it to myself to believe in myself and really what is life about if it's not trying to grow yourself and face challenges and, and, you know, expand what your perception is. Um, and so then, um, you know, I guess in maybe, 2010, I started to get serious about the idea of racing Dakar again. Of course, by then it had moved to South America. Uh, in 2011, I decided to go race a rally in um, Morocco, which I did uh, in April of 2011. And that was really my decision point. I thought it's very different to imagine you'd like something like Dakar or like any of any of the big challenges that people take on. It's easy to sort of from your armchair, say, boy, that really, I'd love to do that. I dream about doing that. Um, and it's very different to actually go get a taste of it and see where you stand and how it goes. And so I found an inexpensive rally in uh, Morocco. I, I went over and entered it with help from, from some Portuguese friends of mine. And uh, um, as soon as I started doing it, I thought, this is the best thing ever. I absolutely love it. And and I, and I really enjoyed it, and I and I was pretty good at it, and so um, that really set me on the path to decide to go to Dakar in 2012. And I spent 
really from from mid April on in 2011, it was full time trying to raise money and train and uh, get all the logistics coordinated and so on, and and went and raced a car in 2012. Um, and then since then, I Dakar for me was really more of a survival event. You know, it's it's the cream of the crop. It's the best racers in the world, and um, I went with a plan to just ride in a clean, safe way. That's what I did. I wound up finishing. There were 200 starters. Um, I think there were 97 finishers and I was 53rd. So, you know, I was about halfway through the half that finished, if you want to look at it that way. Um, but it, it wasn't really for me a race. It was really more of a, uh, kind of a survival or, or my intent was to finish. And I did. And so then in 2013, uh, I went over to Tunisia and did another race called the Tuareg Rally. And there I, I went over kind of feeling like I've got nothing to prove to anyone about my ability to complete this race. So I'm actually going to compete in it, uh, not complete it. Um, so the difference an L makes is important in those two words. Yeah, of course. And um, and so I finished uh, – I wound up finishing second overall there. I, I think there were uh, most of 100, not quite 100 entries and – um, I raced in the pro class and I finished second, which really was exciting to me. Cause it was like, Oh, you know, I'm, um, it, it's a long way from the guy who thought he could never do something like that to, you know, having a podium result. Um, and then most recently this past year, uh, just, just in June of 2015, I went over to race in a world championship event in Italy. Um, and uh, had a really good time. There were there were 80 people in that race. Uh, being a world championship, you know, it's kind of again, it's the deep end of the pool. Uh, the ta- the talent, um, it's it's the big fish and and the fast guys. And and I wound up finishing 29th out of 80, which I was really pleased with. Um, and so I think the evolution for me has been, you know, certainly I really enjoy the chance to go racing, and that's been wonderful. But even more so, it's um, the evolution of believing in myself and, and realizing that I can trust myself and that I can rise to the challenge. And, and that has an impact, I think, everywhere in life. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's how you go about business and relationships and, um, you know, just, just everything all day. You see it differently with more belief in yourself. So. Yeah, I can see these long endurance races, at least like you said in the beginning, it's it's not a matter of competing against other people. It has everything to do with competing against yourself and proving that you can or can't do something. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, um, uh, people ask me sometimes, like, what was the hardest part of Dakar? And it's really, you know, there's certainly challenging places in the race. I mean, we we saw everything from snow and ice and freezing temperatures to, um, oh, I forget. I think it was 48 degrees centigrade. So what is that, like 130 or something uh, wow. out in the, in the desert? And, you know, it's, it's, it's clearly challenging. But I think the, the hardest part of, the, of that kind of event, those endurance events, is that you can't afford to screw up even once. You know, it's not – it's not that 99% is a good enough score. It's you got to be right every time, all the time. Um, because any little mistake you make, uh, no matter how minor it seems, you know, if you damage the bike, that can be the end of the race. If you hurt yourself, 
that injury is only going to compound if it's not serious to start with. Um, and so you, you, you just have to be so careful and so focused. Um, and I, and I really enjoyed that because, uh, at the end of the day, I'm still, I'm not someone who's, uh, I don't know, particularly, I wouldn't describe myself as very brave or very courageous. Uh, it's, it's much more for me about like managing my attitude, managing my circumstances, putting myself in a position where I can be successful and then executing that rather than, you know, any sort of like quick athleticism of like, you know, you see a motocross racer and they do things on a motorcycle that I, I never could do or never will do. Um, and uh, and I respect that very much in them, but what I enjoyed more was was just grinding it out and doing the best I could repeatedly over and over. That that's really what I took satisfaction from. Yeah, it's as much mental as it is physical out there. I mean, watching I was looking at one of the the videos on YouTube it was the the best of Dakar yeah. uh, 2012, and just seeing some of the stuff that you guys have to tackle out there, the sand and the fesh fesh that that just swallow the bike or the vehicle. It's insane what you have to tackle. Yeah, you know, what's funny is I actually had to put myself on a YouTube diet for 2011. <laughs> People would send me, you know, little clips of stuff from Dakar. And if I watched it, I would just get so psyched out. Like, oh, man, there's no way I can do this. Right. You know, but then the reality is when you're there and when, when that's the situation you're in, um, you know, you, you persevere. You find a way through it. You go around the worst of it, whatever you got to do. And it's probably not as bad at any given point as the videos make it look like. Um, uh, or at least it's not as bad if, if you're careful. <laughs> so, um, but back to, I kind of avoided your question a little bit. I gave more of a history and less of a, uh, of an impression of why I love rally so much. And I think there's really two or three things about rally that, that I think are, are really amazing and that are what attract me to it. Um, the first thing is that uh, it's so involving. So in a rally, unlike most races, the race course is not marked. And so the way that it works is uh, at the, the night before, uh, you're given a paper scroll, a physical paper scroll, and it has three boxes on it. One of them is a mileage. So, you know, let's say at mile 1.1, you're going to turn left. And so the middle box is a, is kind of a picture of the intersection or the whatever, whatever's being described. And then the, the right box is, is a little description, you know, in this case, turn left. <laughs> so this is why you see a lot of people turning around and look like yeah. they're lost because they really are. Because they really <laughs> are. And so, uh, you know, you, you would get a scroll that might have a few hundred instructions on it for the next day. You know, at this mileage, there's a danger at this mileage, turn left at this mileage, turn right. This mileage goes straight. And so to, to ride a rally, not only do you have to physically traverse the whole place, you know, the whole uh, distance of the course, you also have to really have kind of this awareness of where you are and keep track of each instruction that's given to you in the road book. That's what that paper scroll is called. Um, and so it's very mentally involving. And for me, my brain kind of never stops. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ADD, I've never been diagnosed, but it's it's really hard for me to sort of have a quiet mind. And when I go rally riding, because you're not only engaged in this, you know, physical uh, traversing the course, but you're also mentally engaged in trying to keep track of what's coming. Um, 
for me, it, it like takes up all the, all the nerves I have to fire back and forth. They're all working on this one problem. And it's, it's like totally magical. I get to the end of the course and it's like, I've been in a transcendental meditative state for, you know, however many hours, you know, five, six hours are what a lot of these stages take. And, th- and that's really just an amazing feeling. Um, you must be completely depleted at that point. It's too, exhausting. Though. It's absolutely yeah. exhausting. Um, yeah. And then the, the other thing that I really like about rally is that I feel like it's, um, you know, I love the sport of motorcycling. I love going for a street bike ride with my girlfriend and just seeing what's around the next corner. Um, I love to go on an enduro ride. I, I love to do kind of anything that's on two wheels, whether it's casual or whether it's serious, just, I, I love the feeling of riding a motorcycle. And to me, um, the, the sport of rally, the best rally riders are the most complete motorcyclists. You know, they, they have to focus for hours on end every day. Uh, they have to deal with chaotic, you know, most rallies are in the, in the third world or at least, at least places without a lot of traffic laws. And, you know, so when you're going from uh, on liaison, which is an untimed section from camp to where the racing section starts, you know, you're riding through the middle of a city and you got to split lanes and deal with taxi cabs. And, and so you really have to have that situational awareness that allows you to, to get through all that stuff unscathed. And then you have to be a pretty good motorcycle rider too, just to traverse the stage and make time on it. Um, and then obviously navigation, like I just talked about. So it's like, to me, um, to go measure myself against these people, um, you know, not only do they have amazing skill riding a motorcycle, but they have all the other things that go with enjoying the whole sport of, of two wheels. And, uh, and, and that's really been rewarding and fun. Another thing that I really like about rally, and this is kind of an odd one, but and I, I think it could exist in just about any sport, but I think it does in rally. And that is that the level, the way that competitors are is really excellent. Um, uh, I think people realize that uh, they're doing something dangerous that, you know, in a lot of these races, not everyone finishes um, maybe because they crashed out or, or maybe they just had a mechanical, but in, in either case, you know, a, a dream kind of gets crushed. And so you go to these races and you see mechanics from competing teams helping one another. You see riders from competing teams doing their best off the course to, to help. And then when they're on the course, they're, you know, they're, they're deadly serious. They're doing the best job they can to win. But it, there's sort of an um, – I, I, I guess I'd laughingly refer to it as an honor among thieves. You know, it's like um, – the people really have a lot of respect for their, their fellow competitors and they want to do anything they can to make sure that everyone who's there gets to the end and has a fair shot at it and may the, may the best rider win. So that, that's nice to see because I, I think some sports have gotten so developed with money and, you know, and pressure and sponsors and so on that, you know, some of the true sportsmanship has been lost to whatever degree. And, and I don't think that's happened too much in rally. So. Yeah, that's a good point. You're not going to see that in professional sports. You know, it's nice to see that the camaraderie around motorcycling has, you know, it does carry over into the competition like that as well. And I should point out, you're not just riding against other motorcycles. There are trucks and buggies and 
and uh, uh, four wheelers out there all at the same time on the same. Yeah, it's kind of chaos. <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. You know, you you'll see situations and you'll just be like, wow. That's uh, that's more stuff going on than I think I ever thought I would see in one place. And you got to just ignore it and keep riding your bike, your, your ride that moment, you know. So, um, oh, I bet the distractions are numerous for that reason. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Let's talk car racks specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. This summer, introduce your kids to the power of authentic outdoor adventure. Serving school-age kids from pre-K to the 12th grade, Avid for Adventure attendees climb, paddle, bike, hike, and thrive in the outdoors. Avid for Adventure offers authentic adventure camps different from other outdoor camps. Their highly skilled and educated staff, unique adventure activities such as rock climbing, kayaking, and biking, and their focus on outdoor confidence building for young kids is what sets them apart. Learn more and sign up at www.avid4.com. Or call 1-800-977-9873. Hi, this is Joe Ross from South Africa, and you're listening to Adventure Sports Podcast. If there's somebody out there thinking about doing this, now obviously this is not a decision taken lightly. It's a, it's a, a huge endeavor that you're taking on and you have to raise a, a ton of money to do it. But would you encourage them to do so? And what would your words be if you did? Yeah, you know, I, I'd absolutely encourage anyone to find something they're passionate about and that they want to pursue. Um you know, I, I talk to, I don't know, 10 or 20 aspiring to car riders every year. I think, you know, I'm, I'm very much a sort of every man, you know, I, I'm, I'm not anyone special on a motorcycle and I'm not, uh, I'm not someone who had, you know, infinitely deep pockets and so on. And so, um, you know, people come to me and say, Hey, should I go do this? And, and I guess I have a specific question if they're thinking about it to car, but it really relates to a more general principle you know, people are thinking about Dakar. I always ask, well, how many motorcycles have you worn out in the last year? Because to me, you really need to put the time in suffering uh, to for for this to be a good idea. And um, and I think that relates to the general principle. It it seems to me like it's easy to aspire to 
to lots of things. You know, we'd, um, we'd all love to, you know, uh, in my case, I, I would love to do the car, but I'd also love to have succeeded in whatever career path or have, uh, you know, be, I don't know, been a, been a ballroom dancing superstar or whatever the thing is. So it's easy for me to fall in love with the idea of having done something, but it's a totally different thing to actually go do that thing. And so the question is, what kind of suffering do you enjoy? And if the answer is that, you know, you, you really just like the idea of it, or you really just like the successful conclusion, then it's the wrong thing for you to pursue. You, I think everyone has something that's just so fascinating to them and so intriguing and works so well with, you know, their, their particular blend of, of talents and, and interests and so on, um, that, that no part of the process is onerous or is, uh, you know, is kind of a, a drag, so to speak. And that's the thing that you should go do. You should go find your Dakar in that area that's so fascinating to you. In my case, it is, you know, riding a motorcycle, but that's not going to be true for everyone. And, and so, you know, you don't have to try to force yourself into the wrong thing. Right. So even your down days are the ones that are still driving you and they're exciting. Beats the alternative. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I, there's just, there's just been really, really few days uh, for me in motorcycling that I haven't just thought, man, this is awesome. I really like doing this. Um, but at the same time, it's like, uh, you know, mountain biking. I really enjoy mountain biking. I go frequently. It's, it's how I try to, uh, you know, st stay in shape for motorcycle riding. And at the same time, it's like, I'm just not willing to suffer as much on a mountain bike as I am willing to on a motorcycle. It's not, it doesn't quite, I enjoy it. I like it, but it doesn't click for me at the same kind of spiritual web level that, that riding a motorcycle does. And so, you know, for me to say, Oh, I want to go, you know, compete in mountain biking at the highest level. It's just, it's not a realistic goal because I'm, I'm not going to enjoy putting in what it takes to get there. Uh, whereas you know, again, this is a very personal thing, but for me in motorcycling, it's like, no, I, I really did enjoy, you know, I put on tens of thousands of miles training for Dakar, um, in, you know, in all kinds of conditions, like really good ones, but also really bad conditions where it's just dusty and hot and the trail is boring and it's terrible. And I still enjoy that. So that's why it was the right race for me. And it might not be the right, right race for everyone. Yeah, I think that's well put. So how do you really prepare for this? I know you you talked about doing some some shorter races, and I think you did some testing out in Death Valley. But we're talking about, like I said, a 5,500-mile race, three countries, what, 15 days, something like that? That is a lot of riding. It is, it is a lot of riding. And, you know, at some level, you, you can never totally prepare for it. But I, I think it comes down to a few things. One is that the pace that you ride in Dakar – or an event like that has to be totally within, it has to be totally dialed for you. Um, you know, it can't be the kind of thing where you're having moments and feeling like, whoa, I just got away with something. It has right. to be like, I can ride this pace, you know, fresh or tired, hot or cold, beginning of the day, end of the day, whether it's, you know, any kind of condition or terrain, I know that there's a speed that I can go 
where I'm not taking a lot of risk, where I don't have to use a lot of mental energy to, to do it, and where I'm not going to be kind of uh, clenching my muscles every so often as I think, oh, 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 and then I, you know, survived. Um, you know, when I, when I rode to car, I rode, I don't know, 60 or 70% of the fastest pace that I could go because I just, I never wanted to uh, put myself in a position of having gone to 101% of the pace that I could go, you know? And, um, and I was, I was pretty successful at that. So I think the training regimen is, you know, obviously it's eating right. And obviously it's time in the gym and obviously it's time on a mountain bike. And obviously it's, it's time practicing the navigational aspects. And, and obviously it's learning a lot about your motorcycle and how to take care of it. Uh, you know, both in the shop and also when you're riding it so that you don't, you're not breaking stuff and wearing things out, but it also is just committing to a totally subconscious level, a reliable pace that you know that you can ride day in, day out, no matter what the situation is. And, and that just takes a lot of hours in the saddle. Um, you know, I, I think I put on uh, an engine hour. You know, obviously, that's actually the time the motor was running and turning over. So if you go out, if you leave your truck and you're gone from your truck for eight hours, a lot of people will only put on you know, three, four, five engine hours in that eight hours between, you know, they stop here, or they do this, or they get lost and look at the map and, and all that kind of melts away time. Right. And I think I put on, uh, oh, between 800 and 900 engine hours in the year leading up to Dakar. <laughs> That's a lot of riding. It's a lot of riding. I mean, it, you know, even on, even on tight trail, I think I averaged about 20 miles an hour for most of that because I rode mostly single track trail, but that's, you know, that's thousands of miles of, of, you know, nasty little goat trail. And, and, and I think that's what allowed me to be successful is that when I, when I got to the car, very little was unfamiliar that I had the possibility to familiarize myself with in advance. Yeah. No, I can understand. Single track is, is my favorite to ride and just being out there for what amounts to a day. But like you said, it, it really ends up being four or five engine hours. You know, if you're lucky, yeah. that's exhausting riding. Yeah. You know, once you're, you're throwing the bike around and ducking in between trees and, and, uh, all the technical ability it takes to, to keep that bike on the, on the path and upright, it really is exhausting. So it puts it in perspective. If you're doing this, you know, 800 engine hours of this kind of riding, uh, leading up to it, that's a, that's a lot of preparation for sure. Yeah. It was a, it was a lot of time and it's a lot of, it's a lot of chains and sprockets and brake pads and everything else, you know? So, right. um, <laughs> right. but it, like I said, I, I feel like, you know, it's the job I was born for. I loved every minute of it. And that wouldn't be true for everyone. And, and, and so that's how you know whether it's something that maybe is, is the right challenge for some, you to take on. I think for everyone, I hope there's something that they would be equally as fascinated in as I was in that. And, you know, I would encourage anyone to find that and go pursue it. You know, that it, whether it's motorcycles or basket weaving isn't really the point, you know? Yeah, we should all have something like that. Yeah, yeah. So how about a story about something that, that went awry, maybe uh, either in training or one of these races? Just a good, fun story. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll go to, to the most recent race I did, the Sardinia Rally this year. Um, so when I got there, there there's really a, an amazing kind of roster of riders that, that showed up there. We had 
a bunch of the sort of usual suspects from rally. There's a guy named Mark Coma who's been the world champion many times and has won Dakar many times and so on. But then there were also some some interesting people. There was a guy named Carlos Checa who was uh, world superbike champion. He was a GP rider. Uh, he sort of was, uh, I think he was Yamaha's number one GP entry for some years back at the beginning of the MotoGP era. And then he raced for a bunch of different factories. And he, I think he won the 2011 World Superbike title. So, you know, a really accomplished road racer. And he showed up at Sardinia to race this rally. And so the first day, uh, we had set really similar times in the prologue. And so we were kind of staged near each other um, on the course. You, you, it's a staggered start. You, you start in typically one-minute intervals from the person who finished ahead or behind you the day before. And so um, at the end of the first stage, we, we had an opportunity to get gas at a gas station. And I pulled in, and Carlos Checa was there at the pump. And I, I went over to him, and I just introduced myself. And I said, you know, I think it's so cool that you're here because um, – it's, you know, you could be anywhere doing anything. And this is really, you know, rallies aren't particularly comfortable events to participate in. You know, it's, it is physically grueling. And the fact that you want to be here shows me that, you know, you really love motorcycle riding. And I think that's awesome. And uh, he thanked me and he was very gracious. And, uh, and then from then on every day, we, we continued to finish really near to each other. He wound up beating me by, uh, oh, about, I think 40 seconds over over five full days of racing. So we were <laughs> no really kidding. close in pace. And and I'm kind of proud to have been beaten by him, which probably sounds funny, but it's like, you know, it's so neat to get to be around someone like that and what he's done and where he's been. And, and for him to come over, you know, every time we were checking into a stage or coming out of one, he'd come find me and he'd say, oh, what did you think about this? Or, you know, how did you – how did you feel about that? Or did you like this part or whatever? And, um, and so it was just a really cool experience to get to be around somebody like that. Um, and then you ask about something that, that went awry, uh, or went wrong. Um, I, uh, in this, in this last race, uh, we were running uh, golden tire, which is a, a European tire. That's, that's the really high performance and by that, I mean, they don't last long, like they work really well, but they give their life in a hurry to, to uh, give you more traction. And I pulled into the pit, we were changing tires both midday and every night. So we, we went through, two of us went through 30 tires in five days. Um, and, uh, uh, or we would have, we really went through 29 because I forgot to change my tire. I pulled into the pit in the middle of the day. And my teammate had crashed and was kind of all hands on deck. We were trying to fix his bike and get him sorted out. And I hadn't had any issues. You know, my bike was perfect. So I just kind of refilled my camelback and helped out with what he was doing and then took off. And about five minutes later, realized that I'd forgotten to change my tire. Oh, that's a tough oversight. <laughs> well, it is because it started raining. And we got into these, we were, we were riding this course that was super slick mud and anyone who's tried it knows that in mud, really, it's just how sharp the edge of the tire is that matters. It, it almost doesn't matter how tall the knob is. It almost doesn't matter what pattern it is. It's just that it has a biting edge. And my tire was completely round. And so the whole afternoon, I got to 
everywhere that I turned the throttle at all, the bike just spun up and, and got no drive. And it was kind of one of those, like, I got to just think about my mistake, oh, five or six times a minute <laughs> for the next few hours. And, you know, that's, that's one of those moments when you just, it's easy to blame yourself and to get upset. And, and then you realize, I'm riding a motorcycle around Italy. Like, I really don't have anything to be upset about. Um, uh, and I guess to wrap that story up, um, I think I lost at least 40 seconds having a dull tire on that afternoon. So, uh, you know, now I'd never thought of it that way, but putting those two, two stories next to each other, I really wish I'd changed that tire. So, yeah, no doubt. Well, I imagine every other race stop, uh, concludes with, I don't care if I have water. I don't care if I have food. I don't care if I have rest. I just care if I have a tire. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you always, uh, it's like the military. You fight the battles you've already, you've already been through, right? Exactly. Yep. You got that right. So would you do it again? Are you planning on doing it again? Uh, you know, as it relates to Dakar, I probably won't. Um, for me, you know, first off, it's really a year to go do that race, uh, between fundraising and training and preparation and everything else. Uh, it, and, and I feel like there's, there's other things I want to take on. Um, the, as it relates to other races, yeah, I really hope I will. I've been I've been really lucky to get hooked up with a, a sponsor, uh, If You CK Wine. Uh, so if if you uh, if you say that, you kind of get the joke. Yeah, I've heard of them actually. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's really great wine. Uh, their their motto as a company is um, no holds barred, and their 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 sort of slogan is wide open throttle or don't bother, and. Um, uh, I ran across the the manager of the company is a is a motorcyclist and uh, you know we ran across each other and and really enjoyed meeting one another and um, they've been really helpful in helping me pursue um, both Dakar and then the Tuareg Rally in Tunisia in 2013 and then Sardinia this past year and um, you know it's it's been great to work with them and I really enjoy the challenge of racing and I really like exploring. So there's some other rally that I'll go do. I don't know what it is yet. There's no definite plan. But I, it's not Dakar that I want to do again because, you know, I, I really wondered if I could do it. And I did it. So I don't wonder that anymore. And now right. I'd like to go, you know, fulfill my curiosity somewhere else. Yeah, you checked that one off your bucket list. I can see that. Yeah. That's a lot of time of preparation for something like that where you can spend all that, that same amount of time uh, just looking for another – or trying to check off another bucket list item for sure. You know, I, I hesitate with the bucket list concept because I feel like it, you know, it, it makes it a bit more about the summit than the climb, if you will. Yeah. And, and that's really not the issue for me. It's really more the curiosity of like, well, I don't, I don't want to climb the same mountain. I like climbing mountains, but I don't want to climb the same one every time. You know, I, I really want to go have, some different experiences in different places and, and meet a different crowd of people. And, and, um, and so it's, it's not that it's just about the summit, but it, it is that I, I really like variety. So I'm going to pursue that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about your company. You invented the double take mirror, which I love. Absolutely love. Um, I actually just put some or put a mirror on my dual sport bike and it was the first mirror that I could actually see out of behind me when I got out on the pavement and had to put the thing up. Um, in fact, I even 
just had a buddy of mine who's uh, just got his own bike and I encouraged him to go get himself a double take. So I think you probably have a sale on your website from him today. Oh, right on. Right on. <laughs> Spreading the word for you. So tell me a little bit about double take and about the other projects you have going on. You certainly have a few. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, again, in, in, in wearing out all these motorcycle parts, I've, I've, uh, uh, run across things. I, I have a list that I keep for myself that is uh, titled, well, that could be better. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good list. And um, and so, you know, the double take mirror mirrors on dual sport bikes were on the it could be better list. Uh, you know, I, I think I bought several of every different type of mirror that's on the market and I broke all of them or found them lacking in whatever way. And, um, and I got to the point where I was, I was, I mean, almost riding without mirrors and that's a bad idea. Um, and so I remember, I think that the moment when I decided that I got to do something about this, there's got to be a better way. Um, I, I crashed my KTM super enduro and it was actually a pretty light crash. But it managed to break not only both mirrors, but also both um, uh, master cylinders, right. which, you know, so I, it, it rendered the bike inoperable, you know, because I, I can't use the clutch, I can't use the front brake. So I said, okay, th- this, that's it. I'm done. It's, it's over. And so I started sort of thinking about, well, how could I do this? And I hit on the idea of using RAM mounts, uh, which people have like to mount a GPS. It's sort of a ball and socket system. And um, I thought what we really need, all the existing mirrors that were out there have just a single pivot to, if they move at all, they have one pivot to kind of fold down along the bar and, and it's weak, the pivot breaks, and it doesn't really provide a very good mirror. Um, I thought what we really need is two joints so that you can position the mirror where you want it so that it can give way in the case of a crash, uh, protect the mirror, protect the bike, and also so that when you don't want it, you can fold it down along the handlebar. So that was that was kind of the brainstorm that led to double take mirror. Um, I actually filed for and received a patent on the on the uh, mirror, and then we uh, we started selling the original model, the double take enduro, back in 2010. Um, over time, you know, I built that mirror essentially for pretty off-road oriented dual sport bikes. And over time, I realized, you know, a lot of people need this. They're on more of an adventure bike, like a BMW GS or a KTM 1190. And so just this summer, I've released a new mirror uh, for those focused on that um, kind of more adventure market. And that's designed a little less around folding and a little more around stability. Um, and so I think between those two products that we have, we, we really have a good answer for just about anyone who needs a mirror and doesn't want to worry about breaking it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And if you got, if, if anybody is out there listening that, that rides a dual sport or, or any motorcycle for that matter, these don't just have to go into dual sport. If you have a problem seeing behind you because your mirrors are vibrating like crazy, give, uh, give his site a, a look and uh, doubletakemirror.com. Give his site a look and see what he's got to offer because I can attest they really do work well. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. And, it, you know, probably my favorite part about that business is, uh, you know, I'll open a motorcycle magazine and I'll see somebody riding across Siberia and it'll have a double take mirror on it. And I'll think, <laughs> you know, that was on my counter in my shop one day. I don't know how long ago, but I made that. And so it's really satisfying to hear from people like you um, who, you know, kind of get why I made it and, and it's helping them. And it feels like, it feels like, oh, I, you know, this is, 
this is a good thing. I mean, I'm glad that it's a company that, that, you know, I'm proud of and obviously, you know, provides me with, uh, you know, some level of income, but it also is really fun to get to see the mirrors, uh, serve their purpose with people that I, you know, I'd probably really enjoy if I ever got to meet them. Um, because we, we probably share a lot of things. So, yeah, I know what you're talking about. We, uh, we sell stove, we have camp stoves that we sell uh, on the other side of our company. It's the same thing. When you see it in print or you see people using it, you run across people that are, are using it. It's just a, it's like your baby. It's your child yeah, totally. you know, that you're, you're seeing out there. It is really neat. Yeah. In his first book, Sydney to London, The Long Ride Home, Nathan Millward writes about his nine-month, 23,000-mile journey across the world on a 105cc postal carrier bike. However, that wasn't enough adventure for Nathan, so he again headed out on another adventure of 8,000 miles across America and wrote about that trip in his second book, Running Towards the Light, Postcards from Alaska. Pick up these two great books and get inspired to set out on your next adventure. You can find Nathan's books at www.nathanmillward.com, as well as the Amazon bookstore and your Kindle. Wild Playa Element Parks are where adults, teens, and kids can go for their adrenaline rush. With parks located in British Columbia and Alberta, Canada, your family can experience the excitement of a zip line, aerial adventure courses, and even bungee jumping at the Nanaimo, British Columbia location. Call 888-595-2251 and mention the Adventure Sports Podcast to get the Fearless Fans group rate. Again, that's 888-595-2251. You can also visit Wild Play on the web at www.wildplay.com. All right, so tell me about the other uh, projects. You have other websites as well. Yeah, I do. Um, I've got a another um, project called uh, dualsportriding.com, uh, just like it sounds, dual sport riding. And, and that was born from uh, really the same thing. You know, this could be better. Um, I had really devoted myself to learning to ride. This is back in, oh, 2005, 2006. And I felt like I had a unique position as someone who had been a really bad motorcycle rider as an adult. And uh, I learned completely, you know, after graduating from college. And, you know, I, I put the hours in to, to gain whatever level of competence. Um, but I could relate to people who were learning the sport in a way that I think a lot of top athletes can't because I feel like, you know, a lot of these guys probably – started riding when they were five on a, on a 50 CC bike and became really good at it and don't even remember how to do it wrong or what it was like not to know how to do it. And so I was, um, back in 2005, I was, I was going to go race in Baja and I, I had the sort of brainstorm of holding a clinic, uh, instructional clinic to raise some money to go racing. And that went really well. And so I held a few more. I, right around that time, I left my sort of uh, I like to call it my adult job. I kind of gave up on being an adult. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I taught some clinics over the course of 
2006 in particular and, and really refined a curriculum that, I, that was helpful to people. Um, and I had a student in one of those classes who was a videographer. And he said, you know, we really ought to make a this. What you're doing is really good. Let's make a DVD of it. And so uh, we did. Uh, DualSportWriting.com was born. And um, the DVD is, is I tried to make things really fundamental and easy to approach and very concrete so that you could understand not just what to do, but why that's the correct thing to do and give you some simple drills to practice so that you can uh, sort of isolate a particular skill, get better at it, and then uh, uh, cement it as a muscle memory that you'll be able to fall back on when you need it. Um, so that's another project. And then I started a company called Adventure Tank, which I've since sold. That was to make fuel tanks, another item on the this could be better list. Uh, and then I um, uh, I made exhausts for KTM 950s and 990s. And and each one of these things has just been something where I thought, man, somebody's got to do this. And I don't know if this will be profitable or not, but I, I almost don't care. Um, and actually, they all have turned out to be kind of winners because I guess other people agreed with me that could be better. So, Yeah, necessity is definitely the mother of invention. Yep, yep. Well, one of the things our listeners, I'm sure, like are discounts. Do you have any special promos for the podcast that you can offer? Them? Yeah, I sure do. Um, uh, Adventure Pod, uh, and that's uh, all spelled out, um, will give you 10% off on either a DVD at Dual Sport Riding or on mirrors at uh, doubletakemirror.com. Um, right on. So if anyone uh, gets the chance to use that, that'd be great. Go for it. Well, I hope so. I really appreciate that, and I'm sure they will too. It, it really is. Like like you said, it it's fun to see when something that you do can can help someone. And I think it doesn't matter if that's um, – you know, I don't think it matters at what level that is. So so I'd be glad if, if that can be uh, a benefit to anyone. Very cool. I like the idea of the, uh, the dualsportriding.com too because you look at off-road riding courses and they can be fairly pricey. Mm -hmm. You get somebody that's getting into motorcycle riding, I hate to see training be um, prohibitive by cost because a lot of people don't have a lot of money to put into that. So they end up skipping the training. They, we may be lucky that they bought a little bit of gear, but they end up out on the, on the road without the training. And yeah. at least if somebody can pick up some training in a, in, in a form of a DVD and, and get that, dirt skills are crucial to any kind of riding. I don't care if you just want to ride a cruiser straight down the highway. Dirt skills will always, always help you in the long run. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And, the, you know, we, to me, it's like we really try to make um, – the instruction being digestible pieces that, that you can practice. Um, and I think the biggest thing is, you know, like getting control over your front brake, that's a skill that can save your life. Um, you know, anywhere that you are on any kind of motorcycle that you're on, uh, being able to stop effectively is really important. And that, that realization of like, you know, training is just not very available. It's not affordable and it's not local. You know, you can't, you can't find it most places that you live. Um, and that was really what I thought, why I made that company and why I thought uh, it needed to be done. So, Yeah, that's great. Well, good on you for doing that. I hope people take advantage of that discount and go in and, and get some uh, some of those uh, training DVDs and, and enhance their skills. 
I gotta say, I mean, every bike I buy, I will get out there and I'll, I'll practice the, the fast stops and the, the tight cornering and just, just to get used to the bike. You know, if, if you get some training, get out there and practice what you're doing on a, on your bike, you're way ahead of the game than most people will guarantee it. Yeah, for sure. And it, it matters a lot too, because, you know, when you do it, when you make a decision to go practice, uh, you're under whatever degree of controlled circumstance. And the moment when you need that practice may be under not a controlled circumstance at all. You know, it's the deer that jumps out or the minivan that turns left or right. whatever it is. And so the, even, even just going out and doing 10 practicing, stopping 10 times where you're focused on it, where you're trying to learn how your bike responds, where you're trying to, you know, just think a little bit about body position and control the lever and things like that. Um, that can be the difference when, when the moment comes and, you know, 10 times is good. A hundred times is better. And, uh, and I think a lot of people maybe never do any, maybe it's zero or maybe it's one. And, and I can't recommend highly enough, like a little bit of practice goes a long way, uh, in those moments when it's critical. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's our human nature to fall back to our instincts. When you're in a, you know, fight, fight or flight mode, it's your instincts that kick in. Yep. And if you haven't developed any kind of instincts, I've seen some pretty nasty crashes where it was just a long motorcycle skid mark into the side of a car. And you know, the instincts didn't, uh, the proper instincts didn't kick in because that was the rear wheel that was locked up. Right. And, that's not the way you stop a motorcycle when you have <laughs> impending doom, you know? Right. So it, it was a really sad thing to see, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get off of the uh, the sad stuff and the preachy stuff. How about a fun story? Do you have something funny uh, having to do with all this Dakar racing that you can share with us before we wrap it up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's one of my favorite stories from Dakar. Uh, I think uh, anyone who follows that race is probably aware of Robbie Gordon, Robbie is a, a really accomplished driver and someone that I have a lot of respect for. He's got a very um, galvanizing personality, shall we say. He's, he's kind of larger than life. And, and uh, so the year that I was in Dakar, Robbie was racing a truck. And he, uh, he had as his co-driver, as his navigator, Johnny Campbell, who's kind of a legend in motorcycle racing. He's, he won Baja. Oh, I think he had 10 or 12 Baja 1000 overalls um, on a motorcycle. And uh, you know, a, a really fine guy, someone with a lot of character. And, um, and so in any event, uh, you know, there's not a lot of Americans at Dakar, so you tend to kind of congregate. And right. um, uh, my speed that was such that, like, I would get caught by the very fastest one or two cars most days. And Robbie was, was going for stage wins. He was, he was one of those fastest cars. So I saw him a few times out on the course. This one day we were running along on kind of a plateau. It's a, a, a hard pack graded road. It, it actually had almost like a, a skin on it. Um, and then in places that skin was broken up and it was deep silt underneath. So it was, it was actually a pretty treacherous surface. But where the skin was was so hard that you could actually see rubber. Uh, you know, when someone, in this case, Robbie, had locked up the brakes, I'll get to that. In any event, we're running along on this plateau on this road. It was in the Atacama Desert, so it's totally dry. There's no, there's no drainage anywhere because there hasn't been water there in 100 years. And uh, at the end of the plateau, 
the road kind of made a, a tight turn to the left to make a switch back down the mountain. And then it continued on down in the, in the valley below on the same line that it was on up on top, just with a, a zigzag in it between to, to lose the sure. maybe, I don't know, 300 feet of elevation, you know, significant, but not, not a, a lot, but not a little either. And, um, and so I'm running along and, and uh, there's a thing in Dakar called a Sentinel, which, which the, the drivers of the cars can sound. You get an alarm that they're coming from behind you. So I get an alarm and I pull to the side and uh, uh, Stefan Petterhansel, who was in a mini that year and Robbie, who was in a Hummer were absolutely uh, at each other's throats. I mean, there wasn't 10 feet between the cars and they're going hundred miles an hour. <laughs> and so they go by and I think, wow, that's exciting. And uh, uh, what I see at the, as, as, you know, I sort of wait until the dust settles and then I come back out on the road and I keep going. And the end of the stage was just a little way up. What I see is at the end of that plateau, uh, I see black marks that are way too wide to be the mini. They have to be the Hummer of locked up brakes headed toward the, what appears to be a cliff off this plateau. And I can see where the mini made the turn and the Hummer uh, had locked up brakes. And then you can see where there's a, a short period of blank ground. And then there's roost from where he floored the throttle. And he just driven <laughs> off the cliff. And it was like, holy crap. And, and then I could see all the way down in the valley, the tracks where he'd come back around and he'd rejoined the road and they'd, you know, they'd finished out the, the stage. And so that night we're in the bivouac and Johnny comes over to, to where we are. And I was like, man, what happened? Like, it looked like you guys went straight off the cliff. And he's like, if you ever play poker with Johnny Campbell, he kind of does this thing where he'll grab his face and sort of rub it when, when that, that seemed to be his tell. And you could tell he, it really scared him. It had really scared him. And he, uh, uh, he said, yeah, he said, uh, you know, we were, we just got around Petter Hansel and then we realized that we'd overshot the turn and we weren't gonna be able to stop for it. So Robbie sort of looks at me and just puts it to the floor and we went off and the hood on the Hummer is so high under acceleration because the suspension is soft. So the front rises under acceleration. And of course you want to go off something like that with the front end high, not low. So that's why it right. to break. And he said, he looks at me and he, neither one of us could see anything. The horizon was below the hood. So we couldn't see anything, what we were about to land in, you know, was it going to be the end of us or what? And he said, it actually turned out to be a perfect, it was a, kind of a, a real steep drop off, but then there was a downslope and we landed on that just like a motocross jump and we turned back up and we made it back on the road and we just lost the position to, to Petter Hansel. He said it was like something you'd do in high school, you know, when you had no judgment. You'd you'd go out with your friends and you'd jump a car and you'd think, Wow, how did I survive that? He's like, That's exactly what it was like. And I thought, you know, if you're scaring Johnny Campbell <laughs> <laughs> you're you're up to no good, you know. So, You've done it. Yeah. So they pulled a thumbnail and Louise in a uh, in a Hummer. Yeah. That's classic. Yeah, crazy, <laughs> totally crazy. Uh, that's great. That's awesome. We're right on. Well, it's been a fun show. I've uh, enjoyed having you on to to fill me in on the the Dakar Rally. It's uh, it's definitely something that intrigues me, and uh, I'm I'm glad you could share the tidbits and and know the details about it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's nice to be here, and I. You know, I hope for all the listeners out there, if uh, 
you know, if you've made it this far, I, I appreciate it. And, you know, I hope that you can find the thing that, that does it for you. Uh, I can say from the other side of, of having done this challenge, how rewarding it was for me. So um, I hope that that exists for everyone in life. Yeah, well put. Words of encouragement. All right. Well, we'll get your uh, website linked up on ours in the show notes. We'll get that uh, Adventure Pod uh, discount code for the 10% off in there. We'll get all that stuff so people can find you easily, and hopefully we can link them up to you. Perfect. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Take care. Would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us.